Welcome to this week's Hotel Analyst podcast. We're back to just the two of us this week. Me, Chris Bound, the editor of Hotel Analyst, and Andrew Sangster, the editorial director of Hotel Analyst, around the desk of Insight to chew over the stories that have been catching our eye in the hotel investment space over the last week or so. And we're going to start with this week by taking a look at some of the, well, quite seismic shifts that are taking place in hotel portfolios as a result of uh, knock-on effect of the COVID-19 lockdown. Um, This particular week we've seen uh, Marriott forfeit a major portfolio of properties in the States which have gone instead to their landlord and their own affiliated uh, hotel brand. Uh, we've, we've seen further developments with the Travelodge portfolio, which is still up in the air as to what's going to happen to that next. Um, and Andrew, a little bit more kind of colour, I think, on why these some of these hotel brand groups are not paying the money to keep a hold of these properties. Yeah, I, I think if you look at the situation for both IHG and Marriott, um, they've taken a view actually to cough up the cash they'd re- be required to under their contracts to hang on to the portfolio. It wasn't worth it. Um, they're better off uh, finding other opportunities. And certainly the CEO, Keith Farr, has said, look, we've got more opportunities coming in than going out so i mean it's a question of just balancing that i guess um and it does it well there's a couple of things i think it does suggest is either these contracts were fairly rubbish when they were first signed which mm-hmm. um, they need to have a word with their development teams <laughs> yeah. um and the, the the other thing is well actually this the, the downturn's going to be grimmer than many are allowing for in that um they just figure well actually we're, we're better off hanging on to our cash and um riding things out you know rather than having the short-term bump of um keeping these these properties on our books so that that is you know neither of them are great i think the former is probably better than the latter but w- w- which one is has got the biggest um you know uh, motivation in this the uh, the big has the biggest um impact um is it's hard to tell from where we're sitting chris but um i sus- suspect it's a bit of both really um, yeah and um a- as we come out of this i think um this 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 pandemic as trading returns to some sense of normality i think that you know the operators if anything are going to be even more cautious about taking on any liabilities at all so you know rather than putting more skin in the game they're going to be keen to have even less skin in the game hmm and of course, what's happened here in the UK is we've uh, we've heard a little bit more about the the various combatants who are looking for a slice of the uh, travel lodge action. Yeah, so I mean, initially our money we we put our money on um, a go hospitality, um, the the new a go hotel, sorry, um, the, the 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 combine um, of which Accor was involved in. Um, that that still I think is is a, a favourite, but uh, um, coming up on the outside has <laughs> been um, good night, and um, well, according to reports elsewhere they've they've already they've bought 18 properties and are set to sign 30 leases they're, they're quite close to that so in, in this is indeed very bad news for travel lodge 
and uh, good news for um uh but the owners there who who well at least in theory it should be good news in terms of getting out of this 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 unhappy relationship with the um with travel lodge and the owners of travel lodge um so i I think it speaks to a, a lot more active um role for landlords and owners of properties and that's something i know we're going to talk about more later in this podcast but i think we're going to see more and more of this um within the industry I'm going to talk briefly about um what's going on to kind of restart the global tourism business uh and um how things hopefully will relaunch better this time so um unwto is pushing hard to kind of help get things up and running again uh and also helping to try and level the playing field in terms of getting some countries and parts of the world where they've got tourism still as a kind of emerging but potentially very large economic driver to uh, get get set up a bit quicker and improve faster uh, and then we've also got considerations around kind of the social and environmental impact of tourism and travel more broadly um is this going to feed through to what happens in hotels the way hotels get built where they get built i certainly hope so chris um three word slogans seem to be all the rage at the moment and indeed building back better was the slogan the (laughs) conservative party had at their recent virtual conference um I'm sure people will be familiar with the take back control and uh, <laughs> all the wonderful things that has led us to. Um, but uh, I think th- this is in the school of thought of not letting a good crisis go to waste. And I think uh, I think for the hospitality sector, for travel and tourism, there is a chance to finally put our industry industries on the map and to get governments actually listening to what's going on now uh regular listeners would expect me to be um a voice of gloom and <laughs> my, my i mean the, you're not going to disappoint now yeah no i'm not okay. no the latest gloom that um, I've, I've highlighted on are the 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 youth unemployment numbers coming out of eurostat the um eu's statistics body um and they're truly terrifying youth which is under 25 year olds um the unemployment is more than 30 percent as an average in the eu in spain and italy it's more than 50 percent and in france it's above that 30 percent or above the more than 30 percent eu average i mean this is a massive massive problem for our societies um going forward um and as an interesting other data point i I think is just how important hospitality is going to be in finding new jobs for people um if you look um there was some in um, some stuff out of resolution foundation and the office for national statistics in the uk um resolution foundation is a sort of left-leaning think tank or a neutralish think tank and th- they showed is that 40 jobs per one 
million pounds of um, output can uh, be ascribed to hospitality. The next closest sector, which is administration and support activities, that creates less than 30 jobs per 1 million of output. And manufacturing is barely 10 jobs for 1 million of output. So this obsession governments have historically had with uh, <laughs> manufacturing. Yeah. Industry and, and jobs, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. And even worse, agriculture, actually. I mean, it is hospitality, which is the great job creator. Mm. And I think this is a this is something which, you know, our sector can you know, thump its fist on the table with some vigour and continually point out to governments and 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 non-governmental agencies which are uh, you know impacting so much of what's happening now um and th this matters and this this is going to matter as we come out of this because we're going through a period now the industry's got its own sort of spot of long covid if you like and it's going to be a, a good while before we see a proper recovery um to get back to my tradition of gloom <laughs> um I, I i was struck by remarks made by kate bingham now she's the head of the uk's vaccine task force a smart woman who is um, also an, uh, an investor um so she has she's not just a sort of public official she has some background in business as well and um, she's been pointing out to anybody that wants to listen that there's only going to be a limited supply of vaccines at the earliest um until midway through next year um that that's the earliest point we're going to see any sort of real vaccine availability um but, and even then even when you've got a vaccine that you know if, if we if we get it and and you know one thing that kate bingham says is that you know we're the uk which is backing um, more has invested more in terms of doses per capita than any other major country um and is backing six separate vaccine trials um, and has funded them and has got capacity to roll them out if they succeed. Um, she, she's expecting most of those to fail. Um, but even if, you know, but the trouble is when you think about a vaccine, you think, oh, well, I'll have it in my arm and then I'm inoculated. But that's not how it's likely to work. So a typical flu vaccine, the best flu vaccine only inoculates 50% of recipients. Typically, the range is 15% to 50%. So at 15%, only one in eight people are going to be inoculated against the disease. Now, are you really going to take much of a chance if, <laughs> if the odds are one in eight? And it's not going to be you know, clear at the time of vaccination that's the case. So I don't think even widespread deployment of vaccination is suddenly going to cure this thing it's going to be a long haul even after that it's going to take a while before people are fully reassured so that's just a a note of caution that if people are thinking oh we're going to have a vaccine well, well take your pick when you think it's going to be <laughs> but um they seem to think we might have something viable by the end of this year in q1 next year it's going to take until the summer at the earliest to get it wise you know have a widespread distribution and even then it's going to take a while for people to feel secure about going back to normal life um so it it, it it's challenging and uh, i think people need to factor this in in terms of their their outlooks of the the, the nature of the recovery very much long covid i'm afraid mm. Okay, well now let's move on to something a little bit more 
conceptual and looking sort of a little further ahead than worrying about the immediate uh, COVID outlook uh, by talking about operational real estate. And we've been wading through a great new research report from InRev, which is, if you like, the uh, trade body for investors in non-listed real estate vehicles um, and uh, taking a good look at what's going on inside operational real estate, why investors are getting more interested in getting more involved in operating the uh, the property assets they invest in. Um, and it says there's, there's several mega trends that are responsible for this and takes a look at sort of some of the ups and downs in the different niches within uh, within real estate that uh, different investors are taking a look at. Andrew, did you have a, any simple takeaways from this work? Yeah, it was indeed, yes. I mean, it's just proof to what we've been talking about for the last year, further evidence to what we've been talking about for for a number of, um, well, certainly in earnest for a couple of years now. But, but also in terms of the impact of COVID, I think it's a gain evidence that it covid is an accelerant rather than the agent of change operational real estate was on the way before the pandemic and even though the virus has laid waste to many of the verticals encompassed by operational real estate hotels obviously but uh student accommodation um uh, care homes etc have all been hugely impacted um by um by the virus um if anything this has only accelerated the the desire of of landlords to get more involved in the operations that they're letting their properties to so you know if you look uh, i've been quite struck by an the, the way even quite traditional family office landlords so i'm thinking of things like cadogan um howard de walden mm-hmm. um shaftesbury um and even the crown estate the, the ultimate family <laughs> office yeah. i guess um um but but um if you look at what their approaches to this, they're, they're now, you know, they've switched into turnover leases for their leisure mm-hmm. um, tenants and um, indeed for their retail tenants. So they recognise actually that they can't get paid, so they're going to have to uh, be uh, adaptable and accept that you know that there that there has to be different solutions from sort of signing a triple net lease and expecting a quarterly rent check. And if you're going to have to be that adaptable and flexible and actually get into the understanding of the underlying business that is is housed in your property um you perhaps think well all that effort well, I, I want some reward for and i'm i you know i think it makes sense to have a share in the upside of those businesses as, as it comes back you know one would hope we're at the very bottom um of of the cycle so as things get better um they'll start delivering um a, you know a a better return and rather than sign a fixed agreement let's share in that success as things climb back and i was one one final observation is the uh, struck by uh, the way the howard de walden estate um it, it issued a press release and 
described itself as a joint creator of a new casual dining concept mm. alongside the Marylebone Leisure Group. And it's, it's, it's really interesting to see a landlord see itself in that light. And I think that is symptomatic of the of the sea change uh, we are seeing um, that's that's taking place in the industry. And you know that that's you know not just casual dining. I think it's we're going to see that in in hotel concepts as well as we go forward. Interestingly, I won't reveal who I was speaking to today, but a major European investor in hotels was, was telling me they were thinking potentially of creating uh, their own brand um, of, of hotel going forward. So, you know, getting involved operationally is, uh, is, is seems to be happening more and more. And then that speaks to the first story we were talking about is where we're seeing investors take it off, you know, difficult operators mm. and taking the brands off difficult operators. Yeah. Um, um, so, you know, whether it's Sonesta taking it off IHG and Marriott, um, I wouldn't necessarily describe IHG and Marriott as difficult, but but in the, in, in terms of that they see an opportunity there to get stuck in and yeah. do that. Um, but also I think it, it wouldn't be um, unfair comment to describe Travel Lodge as being um, tricky negotiators, yes, yes. given their CVA. Yeah. So, um, so I, I think, you know, uh, operators, brand owners need to watch out for that and, uh, um, you know, perhaps be show a bit more adaptability and show the same sense of adaptability that appears to be coming in terms of their 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 landlords now as well now we uh we've taken the opportunity each week now of starting to award our five star and no star awards uh to things that have impressed us or disappointed us in the in the last week uh this week uh we've decided we're going to award both awards <laughs> to one company <laughs> and uh, it's a Chinese based uh, hotel group Huazu uh, Andrew do you want to explain why they get a five star and why yeah, they also get so, a sh- sure so Huazu is is one of the major Chinese economy and actually increasingly mid-market and up-market upscale um, hotel operators and owners partial owners um, franchising is the, the main growth franchising management contract is the main growth route now uh, but the Nasdaq listed so um, that they are expected to have a, um, show a, a more transparent investor relations approach or a more transparent approach to investor relations and generally they have um, but what's happened here they've had a quite aggressive approach from an outfit um, a short seller who's put out a, a, a report listing a whole um, bunch of nefarious activities <laughs> by um, by Wazoo. Some um, of which look to be just directors. simply smart accounting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, some of which, though, you know, there is definitely something that ought to be explained. Mm. Um, now, Wazoo um, deserves the five-star <laughs> award for actually facing down this aggressive uh, uh, approach and succeeding in that and seeing its share price actually increase subsequent to the, the attack by the short seller. So, well done, Wazoo. Uh, but it gets no stars <laughs> in terms terms of I think it needs to do better um, in in how it's um, handling this as an issue Um, having a a committee a special committee of insiders investigating the company doesn't really send the best signals it should have an independent um, committee looking into some of these issues and reporting back Um, let's face it there's plenty of industry stalwarts sitting around at the moment with with not enough to do (laughs) who could be called upon to uh, 
provided yeah well i suspect there's going to be i mean there's a whole bunch of law firms in the u.s um um advertising their wares saying look we're with this class action lawsuit possibility here come and talk to us about it um so it could it doesn't look like this story is going to disappear quickly so i i I think wazoo are going to have to take this more seriously um they are taking it seriously but they they need to up their game a bit more in my view and just be even more transparent um if they're going to carry on getting a five-star award from us for (laughs) seeing off this these activists right and on that note we'll say goodbye for now